I just have to start off by saying it is so good to be back. <laughs> uh, we had a wonderful time of vacation, great time of reconnecting with the family. We were able to watch the services online. Colby did a knockout job. He did a great um, and we worshiped with you from afar, but there is nothing, there is nothing like being back among you all and being in the fellowship of grace and being, uh, being ministered to by you all, even in our singing. And now it's time to worship God through his word. And Psalms 19 verse 13 says that the word of God leads us in a way that is above reproach and that is innocent of great transgression. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, as we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 15 this morning as a continuation of our study of how to carry out every day evangelism. See, Peter's been teaching us in this letter, if you recall, the basics of Christianity 101, of how to live in this world as elect exiles for the glory of God. In other words, we've been learning what essential Christianity is. Not exceptional Christianity, but essential Christianity. What it really looks like when it's lived out day in and day out before a watching world. This is a life that we have been called to in Christ Jesus that we can live by the spirit and power of God, all of us who have been born again by God's great mercy and power. And Peter's most recent point is that essential Christianity looks like a life of everyday evangelism. You see, before he ascended into glory, Jesus commanded us as his followers in Matthew 28, 19-20 to make disciples of all nations as we go about our everyday lives. In other words, evangelism isn't supposed to be event-based, right? Where we do evangelism and then we go back to our normal lives. It's supposed to be life-based, where every action of our lives and every relationship that we have, whether it be in the family, in the workplace, or towards the state, is to have proclaiming Jesus as its consistent and constant goal. We often forget this, but the engine of evangelism runs on the track of relationships, The engine of evangelism runs on the track of relationships. Peter shows us that in this letter. If you want to lead the lost to Jesus Christ, and then he starts talking about all these relationships, right? Then you must know the lost around you. And most importantly, you must be manifesting the life of Christ to those around you. If we want those who know us best, warts and all, to ever even listen to us when we talk about our Savior, Jesus Christ, then we must underline the gospel with our lives, not undermine it. And Peter's outline for us how to do that back in chapter 2 verse 17 when he said, be subject, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Those are four concrete ways that we can radiate grace, reflect Jesus, and grab the attention of those who need Jesus every single day. We can lay down the tracks for everyday evangelism by properly submitting to our authorities, by respecting and honoring everyone we interact with, by humbly loving other believers around us, and by reverently fearing God every day. These are four ways that we underline the gospel with our lives, not undermine it. And we've just begun studying that fourth and final way to engage in everyday evangelism, and that is by fearing God. 
Fearing God. If you recall, we defined the last time we were, we were together, we defined fearing God as the reverent reflex, it's an emotion, the reverent reflex of our heart towards God, where the emotions of dread, reverence, and wonder are variously mixed depending on the situation. So, for example, if we're still dead in our trespasses and sins, or even if we're messing around with sin, even as believers, fearing God is going to look a lot like dread as we fear either God's judgment or his discipline. For as Hebrews 10.31 teaches us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But on the other hand, if our sins are forgiven and we're walking in the Spirit, and if we're beholding daily the glory and the goodness of the Lord who saved us, then fearing God is going to look a lot more like reverence and wonder and awe. For as Psalms 130 verse 4 says, With you there is forgiveness, so that you may be feared. So that's why I say that fearing God is the reverent reflex of our heart towards God, where the emotions of dread, reverence, and wonder are variously mixed depending on our situation. And it is here, in the fear of God, that we find the bedrock upon which all evangelistic lives are built. They are built on the foundation of fearing God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 and 20, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, be reconciled to God. You see, it is the fear of the Lord that leads us to the evangelism of the lost. When we fear God properly we'll begin to proclaim Christ faithfully and be transformed into everyday evangelists. And in this section, in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 3, Peter examines six evangelistic effects of fearing God. Six evangelistic effects that come into our lives when we develop a proper fear of Him. The last time I was with you, we saw in verses 13 through 14 that the fear of God produces a powerful life. It produces a life that courageously proclaims the gospel. Peter writes, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. See, because we know that our present is protected by God and that our future is glory with God, then we don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of what might happen to you if you show proper subjection. You don't have to be afraid of what might happen to you if you honor everyone. You don't have to be afraid of what might happen to you if you love the brotherhood, if you do good, if you proclaim the gospel. You don't have to be afraid of what might happen to you, either to you or your relationship or your conversation with others, if you plainly proclaim the gospel. If you are doing what is good, then you don't have to be afraid because you're not living for any of those things. You're living for the glory of God. Whatever might happen, you can know that it's going to result in the glory of God and the good of yourself because you are in the beloved Christ. So plainly proclaim the gospel, right? Your present is protected by God. Your future is glory with God. So whom do you need to be afraid of? The answer is, as believers, no one, no one except God alone. See, having a proper fear of God produces a courageous life that is empowered to proclaim the gospel. So that's the first evangelistic effect of fearing God. It is a powerful life. The second evangelistic effect of fearing God, which we're going to look at today, is a pious heart. That's at the end of verse 14 into the beginning of verse 15 where Peter writes these words. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The fear of God produces a pious heart. And then in future weeks, 
We're going to see how the fear of God produces a prepared mind there in the middle of verse 15, a polite mouth there at the end of verse 15, a pure conscience in verse 16, and a proper perspective in verse 17. So, knowing the fear of the Lord produces the six evangelistic effects of a powerful life, a pious heart, a prepared mind, a polite mouth, a pure conscience, and a proper perspective. In short, the fear of the Lord produces everyday evangelists. So, with that in mind, please stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read this morning's passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. The Apostle Peter, out of the inspiration, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. He writes, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of God who blesses us when we walk in his blameless ways, who walk in the law of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that... You will lead us on right paths for your namesake through your rod and staff this morning. So, Father, we ask that you would teach us in accordance to your promises, that you would open our eyes to behold your truth, and most of all, Father, that you would show us your glory. Father, as you lead us through your word this morning, I pray that you would change us so that we would be able to live lives that fear you before the eyes of a watching world. Father, help us to lay down tracks for evangelism by how we reverence and fear you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, after Peter tells us that the fear of the Lord produces a powerful life of courage, he then shows us where that courage comes from. And it comes from having a particular conviction. This is important for us to realize that a life of powerful courage, which is easy to admire from the outside, can only exist where there is first a heart that is gripped by a particular conviction. Where there is first a pious heart. That's at the end of verse 14 into the verse 15 where Peter says this, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but... In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. One of the highlights of my college career was getting to know my dorm counselor over my freshman and sophomore years. Now serving as a church planner and seminary leader for local pastors in Columbia, he was a man that I greatly admired from a distance. He always had a pep in his step, smile on his face, and a kinder, encouraging word on his lips. But more importantly than that, he was a man who could talk about the glory and wonder of God at the drop of a hat and was by all outward appearances an effortless evangelist. He loved Jesus, and he sincerely wanted you to love him too. He was what Peter describes here, an everyday evangelist. 
And watching him from the outside, you would have just assumed, man, he is just a natural, spiritual conversationalist. He's just got a gift for it. But one of the greatest lessons and privileges of my life was being invited closer into his life. As I joined him for Bible studies and prayer times and lunch discussions, I came to quickly realize that his effortless ability to talk about Jesus did not come without any effort. For every moment that he talked to others about Jesus, he spent every morning talking to Jesus and through God's word having Jesus speak to him. It was quite eye-opening for me. His effortless evangelism did not come without any effort. It was the natural overflow of his own strenuous pursuit of his good Lord. His outward life before others was merely a faint glimmer of his inward life before God. And I learned a very important lesson from all of that. It's the lesson that Peter wants us to learn here this morning. That if you and I want to be everyday evangelists and live a powerful life of witness before others, then we must pursue by the Spirit's power a pious heart before God. A heart that possesses a reverent devotion towards Christ our Savior. And Peter shows us here in these two verses that a pious heart that is reverently devoted to Jesus is going to always be marked by two things. Both the absence of something and the presence of something. So first, for the sake of our evangelistic focus in life, we must, as believers, have an absence of worldly fear. That's at the end of verse 14, where Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And that's an interesting phrase in the Greek. could actually be rendered more like, Do not fear their fear, nor be troubled. And that word troubled means to be greatly agitated or perplexed. It means to be deeply disturbed. In fact, it's actually used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe water that gets stirred up or a riot among a crowd when it's beginning. And Peter's saying, hey, if you want to, and this is powerful, Peter's saying, hey, if you want to stay focused on living a powerful life of evangelism, then you cannot become afraid or disturbed by the kind of things that the world is afraid of and disturbed by. Because the moment that you become disturbed by the things that they're disturbed by, you'll become distracted by the things that they're distracted by also. In other words, we will get off task. We will cease to be living as elect exiles for the glory of God. And so if you and I are to stay focused together on the task of evangelism, of proclaiming the saving word of Jesus Christ then we've got to make sure that we're not afraid of or disturbed by the things that the world is afraid of and disturbed by. So, what are those things that the unsaved world is disturbed by and afraid of that motivate their living and distract them from the gospel? What are those things that agitate and distract them from the gospel so that we can make sure that we're not getting agitated and distracted by the same things also? Well, if I was to summarize the three major fears that agitate and motivate unbelievers into distracted living, it would be dying, destitution, and derision. If you were to ask an unbeliever why they're doing what they're doing, if you were to dig deep, deep, deep down at the heart of it all, almost all of their actions could be explained by the fact that they are either afraid to die, afraid of becoming destitute, or afraid of being derided and scorned and looked down upon by others. Those are unbelievers' three greatest fears. 
So first, it's a fear of dying. Hebrews 2.15 tells us that those who are without Christ are subject to lifelong slavery. How? It says, through the fear of death. See, our culture is held captive by a fear of death, and we see this all over the place. Americans spend more than twice the amount of money on more health procedures and medicines than any other developed country, almost $12,000 per person in a household annually. In everything from plastic surgery to nursing homes, this fear of death drives the world to do everything possible to avoid having to face the inevitable reality that comes upon every human being of aging and death. The world around us is captive to a distracting fear of death. Are you? Are you letting a fear of death keep you from doing what you're supposed to be doing and what Christ is calling you to do. Their second fear is a fear of destitution. Jesus touches on this in Matthew 6, 31 through 32, when he says this, Do not be anxious about what you shall eat, or about what you shall drink, or about what you shall wear, for here it is, even the Gentiles seek after these things. In other words, they're the ones that are anxious about these things. They're driven by them. Can we see this in our culture? Absolutely. The United States alone is responsible for around 30% of all global global consumer spending, more than the next four largest economies in the world combined. That shows us something. It shows us that Americans, first, love money, and second, they are desperately chasing after what money can buy. And think about it. After every election, what do they always say is the single most important issue that's driving voters to vote the way they do? James Carfield said it very well in 1992. It's the economy, stupid. It's the one single issue that motivates Americans the most. Why? What's underneath that? It's because they're anxious about something. They're afraid of something. What is it? They are captive to a distracting fear of destitution. Are you, believer? Are you letting a fear of destitution keep you from what you're supposed to be doing? But that would affect my budget. Are you letting a fear of destitution keep you from what Christ calls you to do? The final worldly fear I would identify is a fear of derision. We see this in John 12, 43, when we're told that although some Pharisees confessed faith in Jesus Christ, they didn't profess it. They retreated from that confession of faith. Why? Out of fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then it says this, because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They feared man more than they feared God. They feared being cast out. They feared being ostracized in the terms of our modern culture. They feared being canceled. They feared derision and ridicule and disagreement. Do we see that fear in our culture? Yes, absolutely. It started off with safe spaces where speech was controlled so that certain people never had to be threatened with any idea that would ever disagree with them. They were afraid of disagreement and derision, and now they think that this should be applied to all of society. Why? It's because I would contend they're afraid of something. They are held captive to a fear of derision and of disagreement. Are you, believer, are you letting a fear of derision, of scorn, And of hatred keeping you from doing what you're supposed to be doing and of what Christ calls you to do. 
So these are the three major fears that dominate the heart of unbelievers when I was studying Scripture. They're driven by the fear of death, fear of destitution, fear of derision. And again, Scripture is not just to read, it is to examine ourselves by. How about you, believer? Is death, destitution, or derision the driving concerns and motivations of your heart? Because they shouldn't be. Peter says, do not fear their fear, nor be troubled. If we're going to live powerful lives of evangelism amidst an increasingly hostile world, then we need to start driving out these fears of death, destitution, and derision out of our souls now with the truth of God's word. Because if we do not, then you and I are going to become distracted by lesser fears and distracted from our primary focus of exalting and proclaiming Christ above all. And I just have to say it, I think we saw examples of this during the pandemic, did we not? Out of fear of death, or out of fear of destitution, or out of fear of derision, Christians and churches stopped meeting together to worship publicly, stopped proclaiming Christ's words faithfully, and even stopped helping one another sacrificially and instead hold themselves up in their living rooms for months upon months and sadly even some churches for years. Believers became distracted and lost sight of their entire mission of why they're here on earth. Why? Because they were afraid and became disturbed by the very same things that the world is afraid and disturbed by. And that disturbance created a distraction for believers. They were fearing the world's fear, they were disturbed by the world's disturbances, and therefore they became distracted from the primary task to proclaim the gospel. We learned a good lesson as believers from all of that. That what we fear has a direct impact on our evangelism. And Peter understood this. That's why when he comes to the issue of everyday evangelism, he tells us, don't fear their fear, nor be troubled. Don't let those fears distract you from what is of primary importance. For the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God, don't let the world determine your driving concerns and motivations. Let the word determine your driving concerns and motivations. The word of Christ. Because the greatest need in this world today is for the message of salvation to go forth to those who are lost and headed to an eternity in hell. The greatest fear of your life, beloved, is not death. It is death without Jesus. But when you have Jesus, death has lost its sting. The world ought not to be determined our driving concerns and motivations. The word of Christ ought to be. His concerns and his motivations, his honor, his reverence, Christ above all, his mission. Which brings us to the second evangelistic element of a pious heart, which is not only an absence of worldly fear, but also the presence of godly fear. That's at the beginning of verse 15, where Peter writes this, Do not fear their fear, nor be troubled But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
Peter is showing us here how to drive out the disturbing and distracting fears of this world. And that is by actively pursuing a devoted fear of the Lord. In the Greek, Peter says this, actively sanctify, set apart, or honor as holy Christ the Lord. He says where? In the heart, in your hearts. See, this is where everyday evangelism ultimately begins. It begins by worshiping and honoring and exalting Jesus Christ. Where? In your hearts. Not merely in your house of worship. Not merely in your home of residence. And not even merely just in your own mind. But in your very own heart. At the very center of your being, you are esteeming Christ to be of infinite worth. You are lifting up in your affections Jesus to a league all of his own. And you are actively exalting and adoring and revering him above all else. And this is something that we as believers ought to be actively pursuing if we're not going to get wrapped up in the fears of this world and distracted from the gospel. By the Spirit's power and means, we are to be bringing every thought and affection of our heart into captivity to Christ Jesus. Effortless evangelism does not happen without effort. Through beholding his glory in scripture, through communing with him in prayer, through worshiping him with God's people, we are to be capturing the worshipful affections of our own heart and causing them to bow the knee before the wonders and the majesty of Jesus. We are to be actively honoring Christ as holy in our hearts. And notice the extent to which we're to be honoring Christ as holy. It is the extent that we exalt, fear, and revere him as what? As the Lord. As the Lord. And while that certainly means viewing Jesus as the authority and master of your life, it means way more than that. Way more than that. You see, Peter is actually here quoting, and I've held off until this point to say it. Peter here is actually quoting a passage from the Old Testament, the one that we read this morning. He's actively quoting Isaiah 8, 11 through 13, where the prophet Isaiah writes these words. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And then listen to this. Do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. It's identical, isn't it? But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. See, Peter quotes that exact same passage here, except instead of telling us to honor the Lord of hosts as holy, he tells us to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter is making a direct equivalence between Christ and the Yahweh God of the Old Testament. He is saying that Jesus is God. And I need to mention this really quick. That's not Peter playing fast and loose, by the way, with the Old Testament text. Peter knows how to interpret his Bible. And he's actually expositing from various verses in Isaiah 6, 7, and 8 that the Lord of hosts mentioned there in Isaiah 8, 13 is actually the Messiah, the Christ. 
This is a sermon for another time that I wish I could give right now. <laughs> but the one to be honored as the Lord of hosts in Isaiah 8.12 is actually the one named Emmanuel in Isaiah 8.10 and in Isaiah 7 verse 14. And he is the one who is called, who calls God my God in Isaiah 7.13, even though he's the one who's seated on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, whose majesty fills the temple. Okay, so this is the glory of Christ himself, just as the apostle John testified of in John 12, 41. This is not Peter putting a Christological reinterpretation on the Old Testament. This is Peter expositing what was always there, but we never saw it until the Christ came. Isaiah, when he said to honor the Lord of hosts as holy, he was truly speaking about the Christ. And so Peter, knowing all of that, he shortens all of that exposition down into simply saying, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This means to worship Jesus. It means to venerate him. It means to, as Isaiah makes clear, to reverently fear Jesus and esteem Jesus in your hearts as no one less than Yahweh God, the Lord of hosts himself. It means to give to Jesus the exaltation, the high exaltation that Jesus deserves and to bow before him, not only as your master and as Lord, but as your God. Beloved, this is at the heart of every powerful life of witness. It is a pious heart, one that has no room to fear the fears that this world fears because it so greatly fears and honors and adores and reveres Jesus above all as the Lord. We've lost this in the American culture today. When's the last time you've heard anyone talk about fearing Jesus? Brothers and sisters, do not dethrone the sovereign son or take from him the glory that he's due. He's not the doughy-eyed, well-manicured man whose glamour shot sits above, silently, your grandmother's coffee table. And he's also not that handsome, winsome, casual boyfriend that is trotted out in front of your face by television and film producers. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is to be greatly feared, honored, and exalted. And how should we picture him? We should picture Jesus as he truly is. Might I contend even as Revelation 1 verses 13 through 16 describes him as he is right now. For Jesus is the one as scripture reveals who right now at this very moment is in the heavens at the right hand of the throne of God clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head are white like white wool like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice is like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and his face is like the sun. 
shining in full brilliance. That's what you and I are to picture in our mind's eyes when we think about Jesus. Not as a docile, borderline hippie with a beard and long hair who'd make a comfortable coffee companion, but as the holy God, the Lord of hosts, the one who sits upon the everlasting throne, whose swelling glory fills the temple, whose every utterance shakes the very foundation of the earth, and whose very vision causes sinful man to cry out, Woe, woe, woe is me! And in his hands and in his feet and on his side bear the very wounds on this divine one by which you can come to him. That is Jesus. And you've never seen anything like him before. Any other view of Jesus other than that will lead to worldly fear, personal disturbance by the circumstances of life, and missional distraction away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord. He is God, and He is worthy to be worshipped, and He is worthy to be feared, and He is worthy to be proclaimed as the Lord He is in every single relationship you have, and in every corner of this globe. This is the heart of an everyday evangelist. It is a pious heart brought low by the glory of Jesus beheld. It is a heart that says, come what may, whether it be derision, destitution, or death, I will proclaim Christ and make him known. For he is not only the Savior of sinners and the Lord of glory, but he is God over all. And it is with that very same authority, all authority and heaven and on earth, that he has commissioned us to enter into every relationship you have and fear him more than the person you're witnessing to, more than the relationship that you view as beloved, to fear him above all and to make disciples among them all by the proclamation of the gospel. And as Peter already showed us back in verse 6, if we truly honor Christ the Lord, Christ as Lord in our hearts, then we're going to begin to obey his commission with our lives. It all starts in the heart. If we want to start growing in our everyday evangelism, then our view of Jesus has got to become a little bit more like a Revelation 1 and a little bit less like our grandmother's paintings or our current television shows. It needs to become more like Christ the Lord. For as the Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote, it will only be a Christ highly prized that will be a Christ highly obeyed. So how do we do that? How do we do this? How do we grow in our estimation of Jesus so that we're not disturbed by the things that the world is disturbed by and distracted from our mission as believers? Well, it won't come without any work. Effortless evangelism is not without any effort. Just as I was shown and still strive to learn in my own life, it takes toiling every morning, every day, to lay hold of my affections and secure them on Jesus. As Paul says in Colossians 1.29, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. So here are two basic ways to do that, to grow into your estimation, your reverence, your fear, and your worth of Jesus. First, and this is just practically, this is just practically, read good books about Christ. Read good books that help you grow in your fear and adoration of Jesus. 
So if you're leaving, when you're leaving today, I would encourage you to stop by the pastor's shelf just outside my office where there are two books that I would highly recommend towards this end. The first is The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges, one of the most impactful books I have ever read in my life. The second is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Both of these books masterfully use Scripture to shepherd our hearts' affections toward a greater love and reverence for Jesus Christ. And so if you want to grow from the heart in your honor and estimation of Jesus, you could begin with some good books about Christ. But secondly, and most importantly, spend more time with Jesus. Spend more time with Jesus. Spend more time with him first in prayer and ask him to show you his glory, his majesty, his beauty, and his worth. Everything has to start there, doesn't it? In prayer. For who else can change your heart but the one who holds your heart in his hands? So spend more time with Christ in prayer. Ask him, God, grow my fear and reverence and adoration for you. Second, spend more time with Christ in his word. Let him answer your prayers, in other words, right? Let him show you from the pages of Scripture his glory, majesty, beauty, and worth. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word as we've already seen in 1 Peter, so that by it you may grow up even in your reverence for Christ. Spend more time with him in prayer. Spend more time with him in his word. And finally, spend more time with Christ even through his people. Surround yourself with people who love to talk about Jesus more than they love to talk about the worldly fears and disturbances of this earth. And let Jesus use his body to build you up in your faith and your fear of him. Because living a powerful life of evangelism for Jesus doesn't just happen. It comes from a pious heart, a heart that does not fear man, but strives consistently to greater glory in Jesus. May God give us such a heart as we commit to studying more about him and spending more time with him this week. We'll have to look at the rest of the four evangelistic effects of fearing God next time. But for now, this is the word of God from 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another and in the fear of the Lord until Christ the Lord returns to be honored by all. To that end, as the men come forward this morning for communion, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for reminding us this morning the true glory and majesty and worth of Jesus. Father, help us to have our minds and our hearts shaped by your word because we understand that it is a Christ that is highly prized that will be a Christ highly obeyed. Our prayer returns to the prayer of all Christians throughout the ages. Oh God, we wish to see Jesus. Show us his glory so that we might be more faithful in sharing his gospel in all circumstances and in every relationship that we possess. Beginning this week in the home, in the workplace, and in the community. Give us that powerful life.
that can only come from a pious heart. Change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.